Today, I want to present a comprehensive response to David French's article. He published this in The Atlantic. It is called Free Speech for Me, But Not for Thee. The subtitle is The American Right Has Lost the Plot on Free Speech. And th this article has gone viral, not just in the conservative sphere, sphere, but in politics in general, because there, there are competing interests in the conservative movement right now. There are, there are two sort of brands of conservatism that are competing to be Republicanism, if you will. And David French represents one of those sides. I would call it more of the establishment side at this point. However, it's an interesting marriage because um, while I call David French an establishment Republican at this point, he used to be very much on the evangelical Tea Party, religious liberty, individual rights, very fighting the cultural battles um, type. And so I believe it is that that's the reason why when he writes an article like this and essentially has changed his mind or changed his position, why it lights the fire in the conservative political sphere. So I, I want to respond to um, this article. But before we get into all of that, which will be um, fun, I promise, um, before we get into that, the CDC has extended their mask mandates for airplanes. It was supposed to expire on April 18th, the day after Easter. And they have now extended it 15 days, which is just so twisted. The irony of extending the mask mandate for 15 days. And now is not going to expire until May 3rd. To say that I was disappointed to hear this is <laughs> a gross understatement. This is, I mean, it's so insane at this point, really. There are, people are living their lives normally, except of course for the COVID maniacs. But the vast majority of the population is living as normal. There are no indoor mask mandates for restaurants, for stadiums, for crowded venues, and yet airplanes, where they actually have an air filtration system, there is. There is a mask mandate because the CDC says so. So, I mean, we can sit here and we can complain about that, and that's all good and well. Our, our elected officials or bureaucrats who've been appointed by elected officials should understand that we are unhappy with this policy since they work for us. But more importantly, we should put a stop to this, and we can put a stop to this. In fact, the airlines themselves can and should put a stop to this. They should simply refuse to enforce this. They should say, listen, enough is enough. We are not going to force people to wear masks anymore. And the the risk inherent to the airline saying no to the federal government would be the federal government shutting them down. But that's not going to happen. The Biden administration is not going to risk further economic fallout in this already crazy inflation economic disaster that he has created, Biden has created, by printing and spending and the lack of confidence consumers have in the US dollar right now because Biden has devalued it. Biden is not going to risk economic, wreaking economic havoc by shutting down the airlines for refusing to enforce this mask mandate. So airlines, the CEOs of all the airlines wrote a letter to the Biden administration at the end of March saying, you know what, you shouldn't even wait until April 18th. You should, you should end this mandate right now. And this was signed by the CEOs of all of the airlines, all of the airlines, even the ones that were kind of crazy during COVID. They've had enough. So we know that these corporations and the people that run these corporations are over it. We know that the employees are over it. We know that the people, the passengers are over it. The only people who want this to be, who want this mandate to be imposed are the unelected bureaucrats at the CDC. And so the airline CEOs, I implore you, simply don't enforce this. You're not going to be shut down. The Biden administration is not going to unlicense you. They're not going to penalize you. The percentage of your business that requires a federal contract that could be threatened is really, really small. I think it's like 3%. Really, really small. And the federal government needs you more than you need the federal government. Just say no. End this insanity once and for all. I'm Liz Wheeler. 
Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. I like Nutrafol because it's natural and it works. Win-win. We all know that half of the people watching my show right now are balding. You know who you are. There's nothing to be ashamed of. But there is a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness without drugs or prescriptions. Nutrafol is clinically shown to improve hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage without compromise. 21 potent natural ingredients support sex drive, better sleep, and less stress too. In fact, I recently learned that the um, criticism of many hair growth supplements is that it suppresses sex drive. Not so with Nutrafol. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three and six months. So you too can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show at the same time by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code Liz to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere. It's only available to US customers for a limited time. Plus you get free shipping on every order if you use my promo code. $15 off at Nutrafol.com. It's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Liz. Nutrafol.com, promo code Liz. Okay, so let's talk about this David French article. As I said, published in The Atlantic, it's titled Free Speech for Me, But Not for Thee. The American right has lost the plot on free speech. It's, it's a long essay. He, of course, is a fantastic writer. It's a very interesting read. There is also a lot of personal animosity among conservatives for David French. Uh, I, I do not share this personal animosity. This is, this is purely an ideological critique. It is, it is exactly what conservatives always call for that you bring your opinion to the public sphere you have these you have these debates in the court of public opinion and that's what i that's what i plan to do today that's what i am presenting today um so let's let's read this because david french is incorrect about his uh both his premise and his and his conclusion and i'm going to show you why so he writes the american right has lost the plot on free speech the passage of florida's house bill 1557 this is the parental rights and education bill which bans quote, classroom instruction on, quote, sexual orientation and gender identity in kindergarten through third grade, and in a manner that isn't, quote, age appropriate or developmentally appropriate in all grades, K through 12, is merely the latest, he writes, in a string of what the free speech advocacy organization, PEN America, has called education gag orders that have been proposed by Republicans and passed by red state legislatures from coast to coast. So first comment here. Um, I will give David the benefit of the doubt and say that it is simply his lawyerly nature to put um, classroom instruction and sexual orientation and gender identity in quotation marks um, because this this is this is crucially important to understand that it it is not a ban on the word gay it is not a ban on um, on discussion about sexual orientation or gender identity or the history of LGBTQ people in older grades this is simply from kindergarten through third grade, um, a, a ban on facilitated classroom discussion on gender identity and sexual orientation. So he goes on to say, as the Republican Party evolves from a party focused on individual liberty and limits on government power to a party that more fully embraces government control of the economy and morality, it is reversing many of its previous stances on free speech in public universities, in public education, and in private corporations. Driven by a combination of partisan animosity and public fear, it is embracing the tactics that it once proposed. Now, this is the premise on which I, I strongly disagree with David French. I do not believe that the Republican Party and the conservative movement, which are not the same things, of course, the conservative movement's principles and the Republican Party is the vehicle by which we take the principles and make them politics or insert them into politics. I do not believe that our party is motivated by partisan animosity and public fear. I believe that our party 
is motivated by principle and they understand the threats that uh, our nation is facing from those who wish to sacrifice our liberties, our rights, our constitutionally protected rights in the name of, well, not in the name of Marxism, but for, at the altar of Marxism in the name of euphemisms like tolerance and inclusivity and uh, diversity and all, all of these different things, equity, that we know are not actually what they seem, but in fact, just a, um, a bridge to Marxism here. So he goes on to say, to understand the transformation of Republican legal priorities, one need not turn back the clock very far. For more than 20 years, the dominant conservative mantra in education could be summed up in two words, free speech. The reason for the emphasis on free speech was crystal clear. College campuses had enacted speech codes at a breathtaking rate. And here actually is the, is the first straw man that David engages in here, because there's a vast difference between speech that should be not only allowed, but encouraged, facilitated on a college campus at the university level and speech that is allowed in a kindergarten classroom or facilitated in a kindergarten classroom. In fact, to conflate these two things is ridiculous. It's, it's, it's really absurd to conflate these two things because we know at a university level, you are supposed to study things that you don't agree with. You are supposed to even get a handle on insidious ideology. You're supposed to study the Communist Manifesto. You're supposed to study, um, you're supposed to study, study evil ideology. And there's a role in in a liberal arts education for even being the devil's advocate and um, at least role-playing as you would in a debate competition, arguing for the evil ideology to understand what the people who actually adhere to that ideology believe. So these are also ostensibly adults in college. These are 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds who should be equipped by the time they enter college to handle seeing evil or to handle someone arguing that wrong is right and still being able to understand that because somebody is arguing that wrong is right, it doesn't mean that wrong is right. Right is still right. So there's a very big difference between that and between what's being taught in a kindergarten classroom. A kindergarten classroom is supposed to be it's supposed to be about the ABCs. It's supposed to be about sharing. It's supposed to be about one plus one equal two. There's actually very little academic work that happens in a kindergarten classroom, but the academic work that happens isn't taught as an exploration of an academic theory. What's taught in a kindergarten classroom is taught as objective truth. One plus one equal two. We're not discussing why one plus one equal two or why it doesn't equal three or, or exploring what would the world be like if one plus one equal five. They are taught one plus one equals two. They are taught this block is red. They are taught they are taught C-A-T spells cat. It's not academic theory explored. They are simply taught what is objectively true, what is objectively real. This makes it a very, very different situation. As I said, it, it's a straw man to conflate these parental rights and education bills that apply to kindergarten through grade three with, um, with academic exploration uh, and free thought and free speech on college campuses, two very different things. So this is the premise on which he builds this article. And it's a premise that I think is unfair. I think it's somewhat of a, of a rhetorical fallacy. So he goes on to say, and I quote, in the effort to make campuses more welcoming to historically marginalized communities, colleges promulgated speech regulations that were designed to eliminate hate speech and other communications that members of university communities deemed offensive. So even this, this is, this is giving the left the benefit of the doubt that these, that these hate speech codes were actually designed to protect marginalized communities from, from being offended. I don't actually think that they were designed with any, with any good interest for anybody. I think they were designed for control. But again, he goes on, although the impulse behind these codes was virtuous, totally disagree with that, 
their legal application was profoundly problematic. University speech codes tended to possess three salient characteristics. First, they were aimed directly at the suppression of words and ideas. Second, they were usually broad and vague, leaving teachers and students with little guidance as to the law's true meaning. And third, they typically relied on the subjective feelings of community members for enforcement. So two things. First of all, he's absolutely correct on the on the uh, the legal application being profoundly problematic for those exact reasons. He's absolutely correct. What where he's incorrect, and this is actually the underpinning of why the conclusion of this article is incorrect, is the idea that the other side is acting in good faith, that the left is simply trying to protect marginalized communities from being offended that they are simply trying to make the college campus a welcoming place, that these that their motivation was virtuous rather than there being an ulterior motive. And if you operate from, from, from that, in my opinion, naive standpoint, if you operate from that standpoint, then you are going to come to the incorrect conclusion because it's, it's hard to say, well, they have a good intention, their, their intention is virtuous, and yet the outcome could be Marxism. And so it is, it is hard to get there. However, the, the correct premise is that the left is using minorities or using marginalized communities as a pawn. They're using their pawn as a justification to say, well, you're not going to oppose our controls on you, conservatives, because if, if you oppose them, then you're opposing these minorities. They're using minorities as a human shield to enact the control that they wanted in the first place because their ulterior motive is an ideology that actually does target conservatives. And when, when you operate from that place of reality, from a premise like that, you understand then um, what, the, what the true outcome is or what the true conclusion, which we'll get to in a minute, should be. And it would be impossible to come to David French's conclusion. He then says, um, to give you a concrete example, here are parts of a speech code I successfully challenged in federal court in 2003. He quotes, the expression of one's beliefs should be communicated in a manner that does not provoke, harass, intimidate, or harm another, and no person shall participate in acts of intolerance that demonstrate malicious intentions towards others. He says, for students of the First Amendment, the problems with this language were obvious. What is an act of intolerance? How does one define provocative speech? The speech code did not say. A robust marketplace of ideas simply cannot exist if my free speech rights end the instant another person's feelings, another person feels offended by my words. He's exactly correct on this. This, this is why on a personal level, it, it's disappointing to me to see David French, I guess, um, have the wrong premise, engage in this wrong premise, therefore leading to the wrong conclusion, because David French is an incredibly talented lawyer. He's an incredibly talented advocate, um, or he was, for free speech on college campuses. Incredibly talented. He actually was in the, in the forefront, on the forefront, of the culture war battle before it was the cool thing to do. And I have an enormous amount of respect for that. In fact, um, he was actually the president of a foundation that changed the environment for conservatives on college campuses and changed it for the better. I like ExpressVPN because it keeps me and my family safe from hackers on the internet. But I also like ExpressVPN because with it, I get access to a whole lot more content on Netflix. Watching Netflix without using ExpressVPN is like paying for a gym membership but only being allowed to use the treadmill at the gym. In other words, you're not getting the full opportunity. You're, you're being limited. But if you use ExpressVPN with Netflix, it helps you unlock content on Netflix because ExpressVPN lets you change your online location so that you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have almost 100 different server locations, so you can gain access to thousands of new shows. Now, this works with many other streaming services too, not just Netflix. We're talking BBC iPlayer, YouTube, and more. It's also super easy to use. You just open the app, select 
a location of your choice, tap one button to connect, and then refresh the page to access the otherwise geo-restricted show that you want to watch. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and then only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash Liz. Use my link. Don't forget to use my link, expressvpn.com slash Liz to get an extra three months free of ExpressVPN. That's expressvpn.com slash Liz to get an extra three months for free. So this is the part of David French's career or his legacy that I I tremendously admire. It's one of the reasons I, I continue to read his work, even though we disagree about not just the trajectory of the conservative movement, but this this premise that I'm discussing that the other side is operating from a place of good faith. He writes, when I was president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, it's, it's acronym is FIRE, a nonpartisan civil liberties organization, we launched a project that evaluated the speech policies at hundreds of colleges and universities. We found that more than 70% had one or more policies on the books that violated clearly established First Amendment jurisprudence, thus earning what we called a red light rating. To address the crisis, FIRE and other groups launched a joint speech code litigation project. We deployed teams of lawyers across the country to challenge unlawful policies. We never lost on the merits. Every policy the courts considered they struck down, regardless of whether the judges were Republican or Democratic appointees. Around the same time, conservative activists attempted to pass legislation that would open up campuses to free expression. The combination of litigation and legislation proved remarkably successful. The percentage of campuses with red light speech codes has dropped for 13 consecutive years, and in 2021, it reached an all-time low of 21.3%. This is absolutely fantastic, regardless of what you think of this article or other arguments David French made. He, he deserves credit for this. Again, the problem with discussing free speech on college campuses is that what happens in a university classroom is entirely different than what happens in a kindergarten classroom. He goes on to say, here's the reality of the First Amendment. No viable constitutional doctrine declares free speech for me and not for thee. Every single free speech win for a conservative corporation or individual is also a win for progressive liberty. Each and every First Amendment case mentioned above expanded the zone of American freedom. He, by the way, I'm not reading the entire piece. It's extremely long. He gave some examples of some uh, cases that he had been involved with involved with. That was the problem, he writes. It turned out that all too many Republicans want to maximize their own freedom and minimize their opponents. Why? For many of the same reasons advanced by the architects of campus speech codes, some ideas are allegedly too dangerous to be shared. Again, this is, this is, this is, I disagree with this because it's incorrect. This is not the viewpoint of conservatives who want to allow parents to be the judge of what their children are exposed to. Again, Think about the parental rights and education bill that we're discussing. This is kindergartners, first sec- first graders, second graders, and third graders. We're talking six, five, six, seven, and eight-year-olds. Five, six, seven, and eight-year-olds. And if parents do not have input into what their children are exposed to, then they don't have any parental rights. And what's worse than that is in our country, we compel parents to send children to school. It's mandatory that you send your child to school. You're not allowed to not send your child to school. You can send them to a public school, a private school, or homeschool them, but they, they're required to be schooled. And if you as a parent don't fulfill that obligation, then you can be held uh, criminally criminally liable for this. You can, you can be charged with truancy. And um, so it, it, it becomes then a, a one-two punch. It becomes, well, the government is forcing you to send your child to school. It's not always an option for parents to send their children to private schools or homeschools. It depends on their finances and their, their qualifications, their capabilities. Sometimes parents have to send their child to public school. So you have to do that or you will be held accountable by the law. But then these people, such as French, I don't want to be vague here, is positing that parents shouldn't have the legal right 
to legislate what their child is exposed to. So this becomes then, it's actually codifying. If, if, we, if we allowed this to follow through logically, this would be a codifying the idea that, that parents have no dominion over what their child is exposed to and the principles and values instilled in their children, that actually the state has a monopoly over what is how their children are raised, how their children are being formed mentally, academically, um, physiologically, psychologically, and spiritually. And this is antithetical to the, to the premise of our nation in general. Of course, parents have a right to be part of determining how their children are formed and what is, what is taught as right or wrong. We can go back to that, to that elementary example that I gave before. I mean, if a teacher taught a student that two plus two equal five and said, this is fact, this is true. Does a parent have any right to say, the teacher is not allowed to say that in the classroom, is not allowed to say that two plus two equal five, that is truth, that is reality. And we, we don't question any, we don't question whether this is true. Nobody in their right mind would defend a teacher or a curriculum that called for it or materials or instruction or whatever words are in these bills that you want to use here. No one would defend that because it's patently ridiculous. No one wants a teacher to teach something that is false. And parents absolutely have a right to make sure that there's a law against that to protect their own children since they are compelled by the state to send their children to school. So it's not that some ideas are too dangerous to be shared in society, it's that parents get to choose what ideas are put into the heads of their children. French goes on, he said, and that brings us back to the education gag orders. According to the PEN America database, more than 100 pending state bills would limit or constrain free speech in public education. The bulk of these bills attempt to regulate speech regarding race. Framed as anti-critical race theory bills, they typically purport to ban the instruction or inclusion of certain divisive concepts in public school classrooms, in college classrooms, and sometimes in public employment or government contracting. Again, to say, th th this, is the, this is the phrase here that's problematic, would limit or constrain free speech in public education. They're, 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 the idea that a teacher can say whatever or that a curriculum can teach whatever is not actually a matter of free speech when we're talking about an elementary school classroom because that teacher is free to go anywhere else and say whatever he or she wants and engage in any kind of exploration of an academic theory or acceptance of a divisive racial ideology or anti-biology ideology on um, on gender and sex, they're, they're free to do that. No one is, no one is disallowing them as individuals from, from living according to that belief. The laws protect parents' rights. It's, it's essentially protecting parents' rights to the free exercise of religion and freedom of speech because the government compels parents to send their children to school. He says, Florida's HB 1557, this is the, the anti-groomer bill, suffers from each of the classic flaws of a speech code. On its face, it's aimed at speech and ideas regarding sexual orientation and gender identity. Key terms such as instruction and age appropriate are left undefined, which leaves teachers uncertain about the law's scope. And it explicitly grants a parent the right to sue a school district if his or her concern is not resolved by the school district. So this is interesting. Here's what I will say. I am not opposed uh, in general to these bills being very specific. I, I share, this is not just David's concern, but I, I, I share a concern in general about bills that have vague language. In fact, at the federal level, I think this is a huge problem. I think that when legislators pass bills that do have vague language, they are just doing so in order to um, abdicate their legislative responsibility to kick this to the administrative state, to, to the executive branch, 
unelected bureaucrats and executive agencies to make rules, to interpret the vague terms of the legislation and make rules that weren't actually passed by the legislature. So at the federal level, I'm completely against vague language. There's no reason that I'm not against vague language at the state level as well. We certainly can be specific. We can provide clarity in these bills. It's absolutely fine to call for that clarity. However, there is, there is an aspect here that is interesting when it comes to the phrase age appropriate, because the phrase age appropriate is actually very subjective. What is age appropriate? I don't think age appropriate, when, I, when I'm talking about age appropriate, I'm talking about like my daughter's not gonna have a cell phone until she's 16. My daughter's not gonna know about any of the stuff that's happening until she is first taught what is right before she's even exposed to what is wrong and why wrong is wrong. Other parents give their children cell phones when they're five, six, seven years old. Other children let their our other parents let their children watch woke TV shows that are exposing them to transgender ideology. There, there, there is a difference of opinion. It is subjective as to what age appropriate actually means. But in this case, maybe that's okay. Because the people who should be defining age appropriate are the parents. This shouldn't be defined by the experts. It shouldn't be psychologists or the American Academy of Pediatrics or the teachers unions or anybody. It shouldn't be any of those experts. It should just be moms and dads who are determining what is age appropriate for their children. And so leaving this phrase age appropriate, being subjective as it is, maybe that's okay in this situation because when parents see something that they don't think is age appropriate, they know that it's not age appropriate and they will speak out. And if this, if this is a problem for teachers, well, then maybe this should encourage teachers to be cautious. Maybe this should encourage teachers not to try to sidestep this. Maybe this is good because teachers will be thinking, what do parents want me to be teaching their children? What is the line that parents do not want me to cross? So yes, there's subjectivity in this exact phrase, and I'm not opposed to more specific, less vague language or clarity, but in this case, maybe it's giving power not just to legislators to determine the definition, but actually to parents. He gives an example here. French says, to consider the potential breadth of the law, imagine that a young student asks a teacher why his or her classmates has two fathers or two mothers. If the teacher responds with a factual, value-neutral response, is he opening his school district to litigation? After all, answering classroom questions, even when not directly related to the curriculum, fits within the plain meaning of the term classroom instruction. Um, this isn't a very good analogy. This, this should easily be answered, ask your mom or dad. If a student comes to a teacher and says, why does little Johnny have two dads? Why does little Susie have two moms? The teacher should say, that's a conversation that you should have with your mom and your dad. It's easily solved. The problem is those who are against these types of bills don't want teachers to hand those conversations to moms and dads. And teachers, we see these teachers on TikTok, we see these teachers speaking out, they want to lead children to ask, they call it asking questions. They call it facilitating a discussion. They want to prompt these questions. They want to draw these questions out of children because they want to give the children their answer. They want to teach children, expose children to their ideology. So this is very easily fixed. Ask your mom and dad. Ask your mom and dad about anything that has to do with sex, anything that has to do with sexual orientation, anything that has to do with morality. Ask your mom and dad. I'm here to teach you mathematics. I'm here to teach you biology. I'm here not to tell you how to think about social issues. I'm just here to teach you academics. This is a very easily solved problem. 
French says no court has yet ruled on whether the law is unconstitutional, although federal courts are protective of the free speech rights of college professors. They've taken a much dimmer view of the rights of public school teachers. States enjoy broad, though not unlimited, authority over public school curricula. But the fact that a restrictive law might be constitutional does not render it just or wise. Well, that's true. Just because a law is constitutional doesn't mean it's just or wise. That, that means, is this, or the question then is punted to the voters, do you want this law? Do you, do you want this law? Is this a law that you want to govern your location, your way of life? And in Florida, the answer to that from Republican voters and Democrat voters is a, parents especially, is a resounding yes. French says, Equality Florida, an LGBTQ rights organization, and a coalition of students, parents, and teachers have filed suit against Governor Ron DeSantis and the Florida Department of Education, arguing that the law is so broad and vague that it violates the due process clause of the 14th Amendment because teachers don't have fair warning of the law's true scope. Educational gag orders, he says, represent only part of the right-wing censorship wave. On Thursday, PEN America issued a report detailing 1,586 instances of individual books being banned, affecting 1,145 unique book titles. The group's count includes removals of books from school libraries, prohibitions in classrooms, or both, as well as books banned from circulation during investigations resulting from challenges from parents, educators, administrators, board members, or responses to laws passed by legislatures. Now, there's this trope that French is engaging in, but th this is this is a little bit wider in this train of thought in, in the conservative movement that it would be bad in some way to ban a book from a school library because it invokes this idea of the government banning books. That's not at all what it is. If a book is in a school library, it means a child has access to it. A child is allowed to check out this book. A child is allowed to read this book. A child is vulnerable to being exposed to whatever is in this book. So the book the book that is most commonly right now in, in this culture war debate about the transgender ideology, the book right now that parents have the biggest problem with is a book called Gender Queer, which depicts graphic oral sex and indoctrinates children by exposing them. Not only, this is, this is a graphic novel, by the way, so there's actual pictures too, not just, not just verbiage, but exposes children to, to these acts, exposes children to this behavior, in a sense, normalizes this behavior. And that is, could be argued as the exact same thing as being exposed to it in a classroom. Because if you get it from a book in your school library, that's an implicit, in a sense, an implicit endorsement that, oh, if you're a kindergartner and you go to the library, you are not thinking like a college kid that, oh yes, we have, we have both Adolf Hitler's book here and also the Bible because we need to, we need to study some of the most read books regardless of their ideology. A kindergartner's not thinking like that. Of course they're not. A kindergartner's thinking, oh, I'm going to get a picture book. A picture book is, you know, this is what people do in picture books. And then what is in this picture book? gender, radical gender ideology. It's, it's queer theory in this book and, and radical sex education. And it's okay for parents to say, we don't want this to be in our children's school because we don't want our children exposed to this. Now, then French goes on to challenge those who support this bill and call this bill the anti-groomer bill. And he's particularly harsh towards Ron DeSantis's spokeswoman, Christina Pusha. So how did you sleep last night? If you answered my question, not so great, or just okay, or please don't ask, well, you are not alone. One out of every three Americans report being sleep deprived and your sheets could be part of the problem. That's why I like cozy earth sheets. The wrong sheets can trap body heat, leaving you boiling one minute and freezing the next. The solution, my friends, is cozy earth sheets. They are the softest, most luxurious and best temperature regulating sheets on the planet. It's like sleeping on a cloud. I have them on my bed right now. It makes sense that it feels like sleeping on a cloud because they're made from bamboo, which allows cozy earth sheets to breathe. 
so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all year round. Cozy Earth even offers a 100-night sleep trial, which means you have up to 100 nights to sleep on it, wash it, try it out. If you are not completely in love, you can just send it back for a full refund. Right now, you can get 35%, you can save 35% on Cozy Earth Bamboo Bedding, 35% if you go to my URL, that's CozyEarth.com slash Liz35. You have to hurry because this offer ends soon. It's CozyEarth.com slash L-I-Z-3-5. CozyEarth.com slash Liz35, and you can save 35% on Cozy Earth Bamboo Bedding. It is a deal you do not want to pass up. CozyEarth.com slash Liz35. So French then says, compounding the free speech challenge, the online right directs immense vitriol at those conservatives who dissent from the culture of censorship. Most notably, social media filled, uh, most notably, social media filled with claims that anyone who disagreed with the scope and wording of HB 1557, even if they agreed that young children should not receive instruction on sexuality, was a, quote, groomer. French says this tweet from DeSantis' spokesperson is representative. This is the tweet from Christina Pusha. We've talked about this tweet before on this show. She said the bill that liberals inaccurately call Don't Say Gay would be more accurately described as an anti-grooming bill. If you are against the anti-grooming bill, you are probably a groomer, or at least you don't denounce the grooming of four to eight-year-old children. Silence is complicity. This is how it works, Democrats, and I didn't make the rules. So, of course, first of all, Christina Pusha's tweet is, the first part of the tweet is correct. It is more accurately described as an anti-grooming bill. The second tweet is just funny because she's co-opting language from Ibram X. Kendi, where he says, silence is violence. If you are not actively um, anti-racist, then you are then you are a racist. So that is just funny. That That is that is a funny tweet, no matter, well, you would think, no matter who you are, you'd understand um, the, the humor in that, the irony in that. French, however, does not see the humor in it. He says, grooming is a word with a meaning, specifically referring to using manipulative behaviors to gain access to victims. While, while activists are trolling online, knowing full well that they're abusing the term, they're also connecting with the language of the QAnon conspiracy theory, which is based on the claim that gangs of pedophiles have infiltrated the highest reaches of American government. Accusations of pedophilia or grooming can be deadly serious, and they're directly related to violence and threats of violence across the nation. So a couple of things here. Grooming is the conditioning of a child for sexual abuse. It does not matter if the adult who is conditioning the child for sexual abuse is doing so for sexual gratification for himself or for political gratification for himself. What matters is he is preparing the child. He is conditioning the child to accept the sexual abuse. And I think we can all agree that it is sexual abuse to mutilate a child's body, to psychologically um, damage them, to put them on hormone blockers, to cut off their genitalia, to remove their breasts, to give them hormones that stop puberty. This, this, this mutilation of body, this mutilation of sexuality, this mutilation of fertility is certainly sexual abuse. And what, what the transgender ideology, as taught by many teachers, does is groom children for this sexual abuse. So again, doesn't matter if it's sexual gratification or political gratification, if you, are, if you are grooming children, if you are conditioning children to accept sexual abuse, if you are teaching them an ideology that leads them to be accepting of being transgender, of rejecting their biology, of mutilating themselves with drugs and then with surgery, then you are grooming that child for sexual abuse. So it, it, it's not a co-opting of the word. And I, I, I'm, I'm, we've talked about this many times. This is not supposed to be bombastic. This is this is a derivative of the original the original meaning. When I say original meaning, we we've understood the word groomer um, to be defined narrowly in the past, right? To be an individual pedophile that grooms that conditions a child to accept 
um, sexual abuse for that pedophile's sexual gratification. But again, changing whether it's sexual or political gratification doesn't actually change the grooming part of the definition of the word groomer. And then to associate this with QAnon, a radical, very fringe, very small, absurd um, group. I don't even know if I would call them a group, but it, it's really just an insult from the radical left of a few, a few fringe crazies who believe in weirdo conspiracy theories to associate all conservatives who have a problem with teachers grooming children for sexual abuse for a political agenda with the QAnon conspiracy theory is, is unfair, it's unjust, and it's incorrect, most importantly. It's, it's patently incorrect because this is what I, I did an episode this week on this exact topic. If you read the founding documents of queer theory, the principles of which are being taught to children in public school, the founding document of queer theory is the, the, the writer is an apologist for pedophiles. She's actually advocating for pedophilia as long as that pedophilia, she says, they're called, she calls it cross-generational encounters. As long as that pedophilia is consensual. She argues that people should have a right to consume child pornography, the torture of babies and toddlers and small children, as long as it happens in the privacy of their own home. There is pedophilia inherent to queer theory and queer theory is the ideological underpinning of what is being taught to children in public schools. What's being taught to children, they're taught that there's a, that gender is fluid, that gender is disconnected from sex, that gender is not binary, but it's it's a spectrum. That there's there's no there's no sexual immorality as long as it's a consensual sex act. All of these different things are the principles of queer theory, which embraces pedophilia. So no, it is not. Um, it, it is simply incorrect. To associate, to associate any anybody who is pointing out the reality of the fact that pedophilia is inherent to queer theory um, with a conspiracy theory online. He French goes on to say to decry the right wing wave of censorship is not to declare that anything goes, especially when it comes to the education of young children. A school district can and should use caution and solicit parental input when introducing sex education into the classroom. In fact, as the Miami Herald reported, instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity is not currently a part of the curriculum in the state's kindergarten through third grade classrooms, and that's entirely appropriate. But this is the problem. This is, this is why the language that, that French called vague earlier is actually important because it doesn't have to be part of the official curriculum for it to exist in the classroom. We see individual teachers who are introducing this to children intentionally. They are prompting these questions in order to answer with their ideology. And so it has to be not just part of the curriculum. It has to be materials so that it applies to books in the library. It has to be instruction so it applies to any any person in a position of authority who is who is telling a child um, something the child would interpret as being right versus wrong or reality versus not reality. So it has to encompass, it has to encompass um, this. It's also funny because this is the leftist narrative when it comes to these bills. They say these bills are going to cause kids to uh, Buddha judge, I think it was, said kids are going to die because of the Florida don't say gay bill. And yet at the same time, leftists tell us, well, this actually isn't happening in public schools. So if it's not happening in public schools, then how are kids going to be killed because of it? You can't have it both ways. Either it's it's not happening, therefore you shouldn't care if there's a prohibition on it because it's not happening, or it is happening. And the reason that you care that there's a prohibition on it is because you want that ideology disseminated into our public school system. So it, it's a... Uh, um, it's a narrative from the left that is intended to obscure the truth, and French ought to know better than to engage in this. 
Um, he goes on to say, but prescribing textbooks and lesson plans, which public school districts have always done, is different from imposing broad, vague bans on the undefined instruction of concepts and ideas as the book bans illustrate the harsh political realities already vindicating civil libertarian concerns. The answer to that is no, for the reason that I just said. He concludes by saying the right is now in the process of unlearning liberty. After decades of litigation and legislation, it largely gained what it wanted, a much more free marketplace of ideas. But it is difficult for a commitment to liberty to survive partisan animosity. If you hate or fear your opponents enough, it is hard to resist the siren song of using raw state power to silence their voices. It's not hatred. It's not fear of the radical left. It's a rational, a calm, rational understanding of the agenda of, the, of, of our opposition, of the agenda of the Democrats who have embraced a radical leftist ideology. It's, it's, it's an understanding that the Black Lives Matter movement, the underpinning is Marxism. It's an understanding that queer theory also is not only neo-Marxist, but it embraces pedophilia. It's an understanding that the other side fundamentally wants to dismantle our nation by delegitimizing us, delegitimizing the United States, saying we are we are institutionally and systemically racist to the point where we're on stolen land we really shouldn't even be. They are intentionally trying to tear down our nation in order to impose Marxism. This is a, a calm, cool, rational analysis of the political agenda of the other side. And recognizing that is important to stopping their assaults, their assault on our cultural institutions, their assault on our political institutions, their assault on our children. If we do not understand that in David French, as I said at the very beginning, this is this is the the incorrect premise on which David French builds this argument that because the premise is incorrect, the conclusion therefore has to be incorrect as well. But he builds his argument on an incorrect premise that the left is acting in good faith, that they have virtuous motives, that they're just doing what they think best is best, but it has problematic application. That has been disproven time and time again. And if we if we conservatives at this point can't acknowledge what the motivation or the political intention of the left is, then we are going to end up being exactly like David French is and advocating for what David French does, um, which is policies that will not stop the radical left from tearing down our, our nation. Again, the problems inherent to his arguments are kids aged you know, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight are not adults attending college. They are children. What goes on a college campus or what's appropriate for academic exploration and discussion um, in a college seminar is not the same as a kindergarten teacher teaching a child that two plus two equal five or that a boy can be a girl if he wants to be a girl or that sex has nothing to do with our DNA or our, our bodies and our genitalia. These are, these are two entirely different things. Teachers do not have, kindergarten teachers, first, second, third grade teachers do not have carte blanche on what they say in the classroom. They're not allowed to teach things that are fundamentally false, especially when parents um, object to this. State levels, by the way, State laws are also very different than federal laws. States have a broader mandate that allows them to make rules like this at the local level in a different way than the federal government is allowed to legislate these things um, at the national level. And again, when parents are forced to send their children to school, not that this is a bad thing, but when they are required and compelled um, by the state to send their children to school, um, they do have rights still over that curriculum because the curriculum or the instruction or the discussion or the materials are what their children are exposed to. This helps form their children. It drives what their what values and morals and principles their children embrace, who their children are. Um, and if we don't recognize this, then 
it renders children, it reduces children just to the property of the state. This is, of course, what the left wants. And it makes sense if you understand the motivations, the Marxist motivations of the left. Um, again, this doesn't restrict teachers' right to say whatever they want outside of the classroom. Um, but when wh one more comment here. When conservatives like French naively um, agreed years ago to withdraw morals from state statutes. When the left said, hey, we just want tolerance, we just want inclusion, let's, let's separate church and state and let individuals decide how they want to live their lives themselves and not have government trying to apply one person's religion to another person's life. Conservatives said, okay, that's, that's what we believe on a personal level. So sure, let's, let's get rid of, let's get rid of all these, these statutes at the state level that, um, that do encompass some sort of morality. Let's, let's make this an even playing field so everybody can be very libertarian about it. They can choose to live their own life. The, the problem with this is that the left was not operating from a place of good faith. They did this to create a vacuum at the state level where they could then when our morality had been removed, they could impose their version of morality on the residents of states, especially blue states across the nation. The example that I give when I'm when I'm talking about this topic is always in California. Um, of course, nurses can be thrown in jail for intentionally misgendering a geriatric transgender patient. Th this is the left's version of morality that they have codified into state law. They had no intention of tolerance and inclusion and letting everyone choose to be um, who they want and follow follow belie the belief system that each person ascribes to. No, no, they always had the intention of trying to force us to comply, force us to embrace their radical leftist ideology. Um, this is this is the reality of the thing. This is the practicality of the thing. Liberals will codify their version of morality, and so in utopia, in an ideal world, this 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 absence of morality in state law that'd be great but we do not live in utopia. We do not live in an ideal world. We live in a world where we are facing a, a political party as opposition who has embraced a, an ideology that is counter to everything that we hold dear as the United States of America, including the right to free speech and the right to practice our religion and parental rights and all, all, all of these things that have been codified in our constitution. So to sum this up, are conservatives hypocrites when it comes to free speech? Absolutely not. Absolutely, we are not. Our locals VIP of the week is Roger Eyes. Roger Eyes, welcome to the Liz Wheeler Show community on locals. It is a delight to have you. You are welcome, and we are excited to get to know you. Make sure you post, tell us where you live, what you do for work, what you like to do in your free time, why you join the community, what issues you care about most in the country. Um, we have a lot of fun at the Liz Wheeler Show community. In fact, my episode from yesterday about Dr. Oz actually began as a discussion on the Liz Wheeler Show community. We were participating in a live discussion and I was saying how bothered I was by President Trump's endorsement of Dr. Oz. We had what ended up being a 40 minute discussion where everybody, all these VIPs were contributing their thoughts and their feelings and their ideas for how we should handle this. And I ended up turning it into a whole episode. So the, it's a group effort. It's a fun community that we are all a part of fighting this fight together. Roger Eyes, you are welcome. I have, an, I have a promo code for anybody um, who would like to join the Liz Wheeler Show community and become a VIP. If you use promo code ACCESS, you can get one month free on your annual subscription. That is promo code ACCESS. Just go to lizwheelershow.com slash locals. Use promo code ACCESS and you too can be a VIP and get one month free on your annual subscription. Thank you for watching today. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figueroa. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. 
Director of Marketing, Emily Washler, Production and Talent Coordinator, Matt Toffler, and Senior Publicist, Patricia Jackson. This has been a Soundfront production.